0: Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make him known. The Old Testament lesson for today is from Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. This can be found on page 920 of your Pew Bible. Today's reading describes the prophet Jonah's unsuccessful attempt to flee from God's call to bring a message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. God's sovereignty over all things is clearly on display in these verses. A reading from Jonah, chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word.
1: This past Sunday, Pastor Nathan preached on our response as Christians to a hostile and oppositional culture. And we looked at the response of the early church as a model in Acts chapter four. And we saw three things, that we, like the early church, are called to speak boldly, serve humbly, and pray expectantly. And now this week, as we begin our Lenten series on the book of Jonah, we're going to step back and look at a similar question, but on a little bit broader scale. Instead of asking how do we as Christians respond to a hostile and oppositional culture, as we open up Jonah, chapter one, we're going to look at the question, how does God respond to a hostile and oppositional culture? And what we're going to see is that God, he never calls us to do something that he's not willing to do himself. So how does God respond to those who actively live in opposition To him? How does God respond to those that deny him, that revile him, that live as if he does not exist? Well, we're going to see the answers to those questions and more, I believe, in Jonah chapter one. This morning, we find ourselves in the first week of our Lenten series entitled God's Mission of Mercy. And in this five week sermon series, we'll not only study the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, but we'll also be looking at our previous senior pastor, Chuck Davis's book, Jonah and Me, as a reference. So I encourage you over the next five weeks, if you wanna read this book, you should do so. And you can pick up a copy of it in Emmaus Hall after the service. So, okay, we learned how Christians respond to a hostile and oppositional culture. But our question for this morning is, how does God respond so let's open up to Jonah chapter one, verse one, to find out. If you put away your Bible, I encourage you to open that Bible back up. We're gonna be on page 920 of your Pew Bible. And we're starting in Jonah chapter one, verse one. It says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So our text begins, not surprisingly, with God showing up to the prophet Jonah. And just to qualify for us this morning, a prophet in the biblical sense is one that God has specifically chosen, has anointed to deliver his work. This is why the majority of the prophetic books throughout scripture like Isaiah and Jeremiah contain the words of the prophet. But Jonah is unique. Believe it or not, Jonah's big sermon that he's going to deliver in this book, it's only eight words. Jonah in fact is the only prophetic book that isn't focused on the words of the prophet, rather it's focused on the actions of the prophet. And this makes Jonah unique. So who is Jonah? We need some context on this man. Well, Jonah, he's a contemporary of the prophet Amos, another minor prophet in the Bible. And they were both prophets in the Northern kingdom of Israel around 750 BC. This is after the kingdom split into two. And the only time we see Jonah in the Old Testament is in the book of 2 Kings, outside of this book, of course. And it's in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. And in 2 Kings, Jonah prophesies in favor of an evil Israelite king named Jeroboam II. He essentially tells Jeroboam II things are gonna go well for him. Now, what I find very interesting about Jonah's prophecy is it's a direct contradiction of what the prophet Amos says to the same king. So already to the ancient readers, Jonah already looks untrustworthy. To the original audience, they already would have seen that this prophet was on shaky ground at best. And yet God shows up to him. God chooses him for his mission of mercy. And I think this is a good word for us because what we can learn from Jonah is no matter our past, no matter our past sins or the way we've lived or the ways we've disobeyed God, God can still call us and use us. Some of us think our past invalidates us from his calling. But actually, the the more jaded your past is, in some ways, the more glory it gives God. Because it shows that it's him and not you. And this is what we see in Jonah's story. So God, he calls Jonah this imperfect prophet. And what does it say? It says, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, this is a phrase that shows up over 100 times in the Old Testament. And it shows up in places where God is specifically calling someone to a specific task. For example, the word of the Lord shows up to Abram when God first calls him. And what does God say? Well, he says to Jonah very clearly, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So what is God talking about here? What evil is he referencing? Well, Nineveh was the capital of the ancient Assyrian empire. And Assyria was one of the cruelest, most violent empires in the ancient world. In fact, Assyrian kings like Shalomanser, they're actually known for having these boastful recordings of their genocidal deeds. They're boasting about genociding other nations. And we actually learned from another book of the Bible what Nineveh specifically was all about, the city. In another minor prophet named Nahum, Nahum says that Nineveh was filled with witchcraft, with prostitution, with child sacrifice, and with murder. Needless to say, this city was not a place you'd wanna to go to on holiday. Not only that, but you really wouldn't wanna go there as an Israelite because the Assyrians were an enemy of the people of Israel. And by this point in Israel's history, they've enacted a heavy tax on the 10 Northern tribes that they're barely able to pay. Eventually, the Assyrians will conquer the Northern kingdom of Israel and they'll completely annihilate the Northern 10 tribes. These are the lost tribes of Israel. They're gone. This is what Assyria will do. So what's God's response to this city that's filled with sin? What's God's response to these people who are the enemies of his people? Well, it's a response of love, which is the surprise in the text. And maybe you didn't realize it, but this phrase really highlights God's love. It's this phrase, call out against it. You see, this calling out is actually a really good thing because this calling out is God giving these individuals an opportunity to repent and turn from their sinful ways. In fact, we learn from Jonah later in chapter four, that this is why he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, because he doesn't want God to forgive these people. He wants God to destroy these people. And he complains to God. He says, God, I knew you were forgiving. I knew you were merciful. This is why I never wanted to go in the first place. And so God, his response to this oppositional culture, what we see here is it's a response that's rooted in love and it leads him to even pursue those who are vehemently opposed to him. And maybe this is a surprise to you. Maybe there's even a certain person in your own life or a certain group of people that you've written off. Beyond God's love. Well, friends, what the Bible shows us is that there's no one too lost. There's no one too far gone. You see, there's no person that's truly God forsaken because God, He loves all people and pursues all people. And I think this is easy for us to forget. And so I have a really practical way I remind myself of God's heart towards all people how I can practically practically carry his posture into my conversations. It's one of the things that I've learned as the pastor of evangelism here at Standwich. I have four reminders that I bring with me whenever I talk to anyone, whether the person's a Christian or a Muslim or an atheist, whether it's male or female, whether the individual's in the army or they're a civilian, I have four assumptions that I bring into every conversation. The first assumption, number one, is that God loves this person and desires their repentance. This is biblical, actually. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says that God is not slow as some consider slow, but he's patient with us, desiring that none would come to judgment, right? He desires all repentance, all repentance. And this is a great reminder. Whenever you're talking to someone, you know God's will for them. It's that they would repent. That's God's will. Now, this is my first assumption, but my second assumption is uh, that God's already speaking to this person. God has placed eternity in their heart. In Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse 11, it says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. So whether this person is presenting like they believe in anything spiritual or whether they're presenting like they don't, I can guarantee you, because of the way God has designed them, deep in their soul, they know that there has to be more to life than this. This is my second assumption that I carry into every conversation. My third assumption is that Jesus died for this person. In fact, in 1 John 2, 2, it says that Jesus died for the sins of the world. No matter the person you're talking to, you know, because the Bible tells us that Jesus died for them. And then finally, my fourth assumption, my favorite assumption, because I need it the most, is that I always have a better preacher with me. And that's true for you if you believe in Jesus, right? Because when we come to believe in him, we receive the gift of the Spirit. And what Jesus says in Acts 1.8, that we'll receive power, when the Spirit comes upon us and that will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, under the ends of the earth, that becomes true for each one of us, that we have this better preacher. So these are just four simple assumptions that I carry into every conversation that I find gives me the confidence to know that God's with me. So, okay, God, he calls an imperfect preacher, Jonah, to go to these imperfect people in Nineveh. And he calls us to preach in this broken world. So how does Jonah respond to this call? And how do we sometimes respond? Well, let's read on about that in verse three. It says this, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. I wonder where he's going. I love how they repeat that Tarshish three times. I love this scene. God, he speaks directly uh, to the prophet Jonah. And what does Jonah do? Well, he does what anyone who's raised a toddler knows a toddler does when you tell them what to do he does the opposite. Max, if you want to put up that slide, Jonah, he actually thought this through. You see, if he really wanted to disobey God, he could have just stayed in Israel, but he really wanted to disobey. And so he went to the furthest possible place in the known world at the time, to Tarshish in Southern Spain, because not only did he not want to go to Nineveh, he wanted to get as far as possible from that city. And this is what he does. He rebels against God. Direct disobedience. It's funny, I was reading some commentaries this past week and one pastor described the journey of Jonah this way. He said, God said, go. Jonah said, no. And God said, oh. (laughs) Notice the language here. God, he told Jonah, arise and go. And in response, what does he do? He heads down to Joppa and he paid the fare and went down into the ship. And once he's gone down into the ship, he lays down. And eventually he's going to go down into the belly of the whale. Down, 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 away from the presence of the Lord. You see, the ancient Hebrew authors, he's doing something very clear here. He's using a literary device that the audience would have picked up on right away, showing that Jonah's rebellion, it's bringing him further and further away from God. And this is true in our own lives when we rebel against God. It begins with that small act, but then it keeps building and building and building. So what does God do in response to this hostile oppositional prophet. Well, let's read on about it. In verse four, it says this, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So Jonah runs, but God, he won't let him go. The Hebrew word here used for hurled is actually the same word that's used when King Saul hurls a javelin at young David trying to pin him to the wall. This word hurled carries with it the notion of violent force. You see, God, he's using violent force to get Jonah back. It's as if God is saying to Jonah in this passage, I'm going to do whatever I need to do, Jonah, to show you mercy. And I'm going to do whatever I need to do, Jonah, to show the people of Nineveh mercy through you, including violent means. And, friends, sometimes God will do this in our lives. Sometimes He'll send a violent storm to get a hold of us. This is what He did in my life. I remember my sophomore year of college, I was living a life similar to Jonah in direct disobedience to God. I was calling my own shots. And one day I was. Riding my motorcycle, I went to college in Florida and I didn't even have a car, I had a motorcycle. And God, he used a motorcycle accident to wake me up. In fact, before I got on the motorcycle that day, I did something very unusual. I put on my helmet. I never wore a helmet. And that helmet saved my life that day. You see, in God, he used that motorcycle accident to bring me to Himself. And some of you have similar stories where God has used a storm, an accident, a sickness, a divorce to bring you to Himself. You see, sometimes God, what He does is He humbles us so that He can then get a hold of our souls. And this is what He's doing with Jonah in this storm. You see, God. He's humbling him because he wants to get a hold of him. So the sailors, the ones that get paid to live on the water, they're afraid for their lives. So you know the storm's bad. And the captain of the ship, he heads down to wake Jonah up. And this is how Jonah responds to the situation We read on in verse 12. It says this: "He said to them, "Pick me up and hurl me into the sea." and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Notice these sailors, they've gone from crying out to lowercase g gods, to now crying out to the Lord. In verse 16, it even says that the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. These guys, they're absolutely changed. Through this storm, they've gone from being polytheists to monotheists to having a relationship with the one true God. It's as if God is showing off, I think, in this moment. It's like, He's saying to Jonah, okay, Jonah, are you going to disobey me? Well, guess what? I'm going to use even your disobedience to bring about my mercy to others. This is an incredible, incredible picture of God's sovereignty. And in the midst of this, I think we see a slight change in Jonah's attitude. Although his motives are most likely mixed, he does say, throw me in and then the sea will quiet down for you. It's as if he's looking at these terrified sailors and he says, you're dying for me, but I should be dying for you. You see, I'm the one that God's angry with. So throw me in. And these men, they oblige and the seas quiet down and notice uh, God, he's not quite done with Jonah yet. He's not done with this hostile and oppositional prophet. No, he doesn't allow him to get out of this the easy way. No, because in verse 17, it says, Then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. You see, God, he used this storm and this fish to bring Jonah back to himself and to his mission. And the story of Jonah is not the last time in the scriptures that God would use violent force to bring about his mercy. You see, because of the truth of the gospel is this. Because of sin, you and I are just like the people of Nineveh. God's wrath, his justified wrath, was heading straight towards us. And yet, instead of paying his wrath out on us, he paid out his wrath on his own son. Paul, he would summarize it this way in Romans 5.10, that While we were enemies of Christ, he died for us. You see, in God, he didn't just die for us. He died for those that we know who currently hate him. He died for those people in your life that you could never picture coming to church. He died for those of us that have children that are living in complete rebellion. And he desires to pour out his mercy upon them, just like he's poured out his mercy upon us. I love what it says about Jesus later. Peter would write this about him, that Jesus, even when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus, as he was on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So I just want us to close our eyes for a moment. I want us to end our time in prayer. I want you to picture that person's face that you know, who's vehemently opposed to Jesus. And as you think about this individual, I want you to repeat this prayer after me. God, Father, you delight in showing mercy. Thank you for showing me mercy. Thank you for filling my heart. Lord, would you please, in your mercy, reveal yourself to this person? For your glory, for your glory. Thank, you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, for answering this prayer. Answering this prayer. Amen. 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 Thanks be to God.
0: To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.